0: News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Was the Prime Minister aware that the agreement that he signed with this organization was with, not with the WE Charity itself, but was with a shell corporation that has no assets and no history of charitable work?
1: That's Federal Conservative Leader Andrew Scheer in the House of Commons yesterday. And boy, to say this is an interesting twist in the We Charity scandal is a bit of an understatement here. So let's find out more about it. Global News investigative journalist Stuart Bell joins us now to talk more about it. Stuart, thank you very much for being here. Good morning. Okay, so what did we find out about this company that made the deals with the Prime Minister's family? Or the Prime Minister, I should say.
2: Uh, well, um, the Prime Minister has been saying he, since the announcement um, about this student volunteer program uh, that they had made uh, an arrangement with the WE Charity to administer this $900-plus program. Um, what we discovered was that's not actually true. Um, the government had, in fact, contracted a second charity called the WE Charity Foundation, uh, in order to uh, to run this program. And they're actually, uh, although the names are very similar and there's a lot of crossover, they're actually legally distinct charities. Um, the We Charity Foundation was only established last year. It only became uh, a federally registered charity in 2019. It has uh, zero assets. It has a very minimal budget. And it's never actually done anything. It has no track record or accomplishments to speak of. It's basically, it was set up as a shell to hold the real estate of the wheat charity. So uh, how that became the vehicle for administering almost a billion dollars um, worth of federal program mm-hmm. is um, is the question.
1: Did Was there any kind of answer to this? The Prime Minister keeps saying he's going to answer questions about this.
2: No, I mean, the government really hasn't explained. Uh, The Wheat Charity has provided uh, a rational explanation on its part, which is that um, it was concerned that as part of the deal with the government, it was going to have to take on legal liabilities for um, the program. So, um, you know, they're going to be basically placing students in different volunteer positions, Um, You know, what if something happened? And you're talking about this occurring during a time of a pandemic. They were concerned about liabilities. Um, The We We Charity owns a lot of property, uh, way more than any other charity that um, works in this kind of field. And so I think they were concerned about um, that property, 40 plus million dollars of the property being kind of legally vulnerable if they were sued, for example. So they wanted to have the deal not with the We Charity, but with the separate um, charity that didn't have any assets so that they wouldn't be uh, vulnerable to that kind of action. So it makes sense in one from one perspective on the side of the charity why they would want to do that. Um, why the government would do that and how that benefited Canadians is the outstanding question.
1: Oh, I think you just summed it up there. That's the whole thing about this story makes sense from the, <clears throat> we charity side of things. None of it seems to make sense from the government side of things.
2: Well, I mean, there's, there's the main kind of fundamental underlying question, which is why would a government contract a, um, a charitable organization to run a government program? especially one that's, you know, it's your almost a billion dollars.
0: Yeah,
2: um, there's that question. But then, you know, this more specific question we're looking at is if you're going to contract a charity to do that, why would you contract a charity that was just founded last year, has no record, no history, nothing to show for it? Um, what kind of sense does that make, uh, you know, from a taxpayer's mm-hmm. point of view?
1: Good point. Stuart, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Stuart Bell, Global News investigative journalist with the latest on the financial aspect of the WE Charity scandal. On the other side of it, you've got Finance Minister Bill Morneau yesterday admitting to that Commons Committee that is asking questions about this that, oh, yeah, he just cut a check for $41,000 to the WE Charity day before yesterday to reimburse them for trips that he and his family had taken, that WE had paid for, And he only reimbursed them day before yesterday. And the trips were taken within the last two years. A lot of questions about what Bill Morneau has been doing in all of this as well.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: You know, scientists and researchers in this province, anyway, have been working for decades to try and control invasive pests. Those pests can destroy a whole range of plants and trees, so keeping up the fight against them is necessary. So our Nikki Reitmeyer spoke to UBC Faculty of Forestry Professor Richard Hamlin, who specializes in something called forest pathology. He helped to design a system for rapid DNA detection in the field that can identify pests without all of that information having to be sent, and we're talking sometimes hundreds of kilometers away, back to a laboratory. So this should be a big help when it comes to combating species that are really
3: destructive, like the Asian gypsy moth. Before we talk about what the solution is, let's address first what the problem is. How big of a problem are pests in this province?
4: So, there are several problems with uh, pests and diseases uh, in this province. Some of them are what we call native. They're, uh, you know, pests and, and diseases that are native here. They're common and they just, you know, they come and go and this sort of co-evolved with the ecosystem um, but there's others that we call invasive or alien invasive species these are insects and diseases that are coming from other countries or other continents and that can cause significant damage to to our forests and and these are the ones that we're trying to keep out we can't keep out the ones that are already here like the mountain pine beetle for example this is a native insect that has cause uh, a huge outbreak, but it's, it's a native one. But we're trying to keep out the ones that are uh, non-native and that, that could really wreak havoc in, in our forests.
3: So would that be like something, for example, such as the Asian gypsy moth?
4: Yeah, exactly. The Asian gypsy moth, or even the European gypsy moth, which is uh, which is one that we have uh, issues with in BC right now. So the, the gypsy moth is, uh, is one of those insects that... Um, it was actually introduced into Eastern North America, so it, it is well established in places like Quebec, Ontario, Maritimes. Now in BC, we have kept it out, except that uh, recent, well, in in the last you know, decade or so, uh, the, this insect has tried to establish. So there's little colonies that we're trying to, uh, uh, you know, to to eradicate uh, uh, locally. Now the Asian gypsy moth is, is a different story. That's the uh, a much more worrisome um, insect because unlike the European gypsy moth, the Asian gypsy moth can fly long distances. The females can actually fly up to 25 kilometers and lay you know, as many as 1,500 eggs. Uh, and it can also feed on a lot of different uh, tree species and, and conifers. So, so it's a much, much more worrisome uh, insect than the, the European uh, gypsy moth. And we're we trying to keep the Asian gypsy moth out of the province as well.
3: What is so destructive about these pests? Because you know, surely it's not just their presence that's the problem; uh, it's that they're destructive as well.
4: Yeah. So actually, funny enough, these uh, uh, these insects, it's not really the adults that, that are causing the problem, but more the uh, the larvae, the caterpillars. So these insects actually uh, lay eggs uh, on the bark of trees, or, or on any surface. Sometimes it's on containers. Uh, for example or, or any kind of flat surface and that's how they, we, we get them here to travel uh, across the Pacific for example from Asia when the females in places like China or Korea for example can lay uh, their eggs on the surface of, uh, of a container and that container ends up in the port of Vancouver and then uh, you know, the eggs hatch and then the, you know, the, the larvae become, become adults, and then it can fly around and attack trees. Now, the problem is that the caterpillars feed on the foliage of trees. They're voracious. They can actually, you know, in, in eastern Canada, where we see the European gypsy moth do the damage, you know, the trees, by, by the end of the, uh, uh, the season, they can look like skeletons. It's basically, all the oak trees will have all their leaves basically chewed up, except for the veins on the leaves. So that can cause Well, certainly it affects the health of the trees. And if this happens, uh, you know, year after year, then the the trees can actually die.
3: Geez, well, obviously then detection is really important here. And you've actually helped come up with a new method of rapid detection, correct?
4: Yeah, and this uh, this is one of the things that we've been trying to work on for the last maybe 25 years. That is uh, getting better methods for uh, for early detection of pest and diseases. So in both cases, pest and diseases, the rapidity with which you do your your diagnostic, your identification, uh, is crucial because that allows you to act rapidly. If you find a gypsy moth at the you know the wrong place, quote unquote, or where it's not supposed to be, uh, then you can immediately uh, get your you you control a management crew in place and, and you know eradicate and try to get rid of it uh, or at least to contain it. So speed is of the essence. And the other reason why we uh, have developed uh, these methods is that in some cases, especially the pathogens, you can have um, um, foliage of trees and plants and bushes that are looking perfectly healthy. They're green, but they're what we call asymptomatic carriers. So they actually carry a, a, a pathogen, but without the plant showing any symptoms. Now, after transplantation, so we can go to the garden center and get some of those plants, planted out in our garden, and then after transplantation, then uh, oftentimes you have these pathogens coming out and then they can, they can spread. So it's important to do the, the detection early on and also uh, with, you know, with tissues that you, you, you may not even look like it's, it's diseased.
3: So then this new method that you've developed for rapid detection, how exactly does it work?
4: So what, what we've developed is a way so that we can do these uh, uh, de- detection based on DNA right on site in the field. Prior to that, I mean, we, we have developed DNA tests that we could use to do identification of these pests and pathogens, but it had to be done in the lab. And this is, um, this is problematic when you deal with Pests and diseases, because oftentimes you will be hundreds or you know hundreds of kilometers out in the woods when you do you know your survey or, or when you, you know, when you face you know trees showing symptoms, for example. And so we've been uh, the, this new uh, method that we developed uh, actually addresses this problem by allowing us. We basically sort of m- miniaturized the, the lab, and we have developed this this method that uses a a portable instrument, battery operated, uh, that we can carry in a backpack and basically take our lab in our backpack
0: and and do
4: our detection based on DNA out in the woods. So so this is really kind of a game changer for anyone who works in forestry, uh, that you can actually now do some fancy lab stuff right out in the field.
3: So then after detection, is there a pretty sound existing method for eradication of these pests?
4: So in a lot of cases, the eradication is, well, it, it requires pretty drastic measures. Uh, in the case of uh, gypsy moth, for example, well, if you find some eggs uh, on the surface, like on the ship, well, you, know, well, you destroy the, the eggs and then oftentimes the ships are turned away to international waters, they have to fumigate. Uh, if you Pine adults, like we have found like in the Surrey area for example in the last couple of years, then you have to spray um, like in the case of gypsy moth, you spray uh, a a biological insecticide. It's called BT. It's, it's made from a bacterial uh, uh, toxin, and it's very specific to uh, to the moth. And uh, and but you have you have to spray. Uh, in the case of the uh, oak death, for example, that's one of the pathogens that we've been targeting that, that uh, has, it keeps showing up in nurseries in British Columbia. You know, you can use uh, fungicides, but you can also, I mean, when you find it, what nursery people have to do when they find it uh, is they actually have to destroy the plant. And that can be very, very costly. It can cost, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars to the nursery growers when they find one of those. Uh, you know, invasive pathogens like the sudden death pathogens.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: So we all know that most Canadians support the border closure that has been restricting travel between Canada and the United States. However, there's also a corner between both countries that is really struggling as a result of that. So should an exception be made for residents who live in Point Roberts? It's a very tiny little enclave there just off of Tawasson, and it has been named the safest place in America to be during the COVID-19 pandemic, but... They're also struggling to cope with the isolation. Well, the fire chief in Point Roberts, Christopher Carlton, has written a letter to both U.S. President Donald Trump and Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. He joins us now to talk more about that letter. Thank you so much for being here. Good morning. What prompted you to take that step to write that letter?
0: Well, the reaction of my community uh, during this time, you know, we're probably prepared for the first two to three months, uh, thinking that this would be uh, something that would last that long. And now we're looking at an unknown time frame. And uh, within my community, uh, being such geographically isolated uh, from our the main part of our country, it's uh, very much starting to weigh uh, within my residence.
1: In what way? What have you seen and talked to people about?
0: Well, the biggest thing would be the mental health toll. It's now tar- starting to take... And uh, that's within all age groups. I mean, we have adults and children, uh, high school aged children as well that go to school in Canada that aren't necessarily uh, able to participate in the sports that they're seeing their uh, fellow classmates participate in. And then the adults who haven't been able to leave Point Roberts for about four months.
1: That's a pretty small area to not be able to leave that in four months. Uh, what about access to the United States mainland at all?
0: So the most efficient way over the years, uh, really, since Point Roberts was established back in 1846 uh, due to the treaty, you know, the most effective way has already always been by land. Mm-hmm. And uh, that holds true today. Uh, we don't have means to, you know, a ferry uh, to go between Point Roberts and Blaine or Bellingham. So uh, we're still looking at that open transit uh, being allowed to transit openly through Canada during this time.
1: So what about supplies? What about getting people the things they need? Has any of that been interrupted?
0: You know, our grocery store is doing a pretty good job here. Uh, We do have basic necessities for most people, but uh, there are people within the community that have to go outside of Point Roberts to acquire the necessities that they require uh, in life and for medical reasons and so forth. So, uh, our grocery store is doing the best it can and, uh, the small, uh, restaurants, cafes, gas stations, et cetera, um, are uh, doing the best they can as well.
1: Are they allowed, is anybody allowed to cross the border? When you get to Canada customs, what is, Hmm. what is a good reason that allows people from Point Roberts to go across the border?
0: Medical appointments would Mm -hmm. be the best uh, reason at this point, Uh, being able to go to your doctor. And uh, that's probably be the highest point of value uh, when crossing for a essential reason. You know, uh, we do have couples, married couples that have tried to cross together elderly couples that have tried to cross together and usually one of those individuals is turned around uh, due to that the wife or the husband may have an appointment or their partners and they're being asked why both need to go and that includes you know taking animals to the veterinarian as well
1: so has the governor of washington said anything or has any help come from that side
0: Me personally, I haven't seen any uh, help from Governor Inslee at this point. I know we're being discussed at uh, state level and uh, county level meetings, but realistically within uh, helping us try to figure out uh, the open transit through Canada and having those unprecedented conversations during this time Mm -hmm. uh, with uh, the the government of Canada and allowing the permanent residents, dual citizens, etc. that live in Point Roberts. Uh, to openly transit uh, for whatever reason to our country uh, is something that's of uh, increased value.
1: It doesn't seem fair, does it, Christopher? When you hear stories of people who are trying to drive up to Alaska, Mm -hmm. they're allowed in. Why aren't people from Port Roberts allowed to go to Washington State?
0: That's a very good question. Uh, it's questions that we ask when we hear about certain people being denied access, but other people are being allowed to come in from, you know, out of state uh, yeah. into Point Roberts uh, through another port of entry. So, you know, one of the things that we're trying to get is that this port of entry, Boundary Bay and Point Roberts, be um, essentially independently looked at or right. viewed. And the longer this goes on, I think they're going to have to take a more uh, broad Uh, vision of the ports of entry along our shared border uh, between Canada and the United States and start making regional decisions Mm -hmm. uh, versus just uh, uh, blankets, everything's closed.
1: Well, let us know how it goes. Keep in touch.
0: I appreciate your time. Thank All you. All right.
1: Thank you. That's Christopher Carlton, the Point Roberts fire chief. It doesn't seem fair, does it? When we know and we've heard that there's an exception for people transiting through BC to get to Alaska. And we won't let people leave Point Roberts to go to Blaine or Bellingham. That just doesn't seem right. If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com.
0: This is Mornings with Simi. Men are a lot
1: more present
5: and work a lot more in the services sector industries. And as we know, uh, this is a totally different recession that we're experiencing. Uh, COVID-19 and all of the policies we've had to implement to contain and
6: hopefully eradicate that over time has very disproportionately hit the services sectors of our economy
1: that's RBC economist Don DeJardin. Now, we know the pandemic has been harder on women because they make up the majority of people who work in industries like hospitality, retail, and tourism. Well, everyone is wondering, of course, what's going to happen when school starts in September? And whether or not there's any kind of national framework for child care, well, that has researchers and experts concerned. Monica Lysak is a professor in the Faculty of Applied Health and Community Studies at Sheridan College, and she's written a piece on this. Uh, we're going to talk more about it right now. Monica, thank you for being here. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, tell me about some of the points that you wanted to raise.
5: Well, I think, uh, you know, if, as you opened with, uh, women in the service sector have of course, been really hard hit by this. Um, but I think parents all over this country are looking forward to fall with great te- trepidation. I'm wondering what's going to happen. Um, it's not only the women in the service sector, I think, it's also the women uh, parents generally, um, but parents have been homeschooling their children, they've been doing childcare at home, and they're exhausted and they're looking you know they're looking at September wondering if school is going to be back um, in a regular way or if if things are going to be you know alternate mm-hmm. days and what that's going to mean for all of them
1: right because they can't plan to go back to work or any kind of regularity in their lives if they know that simple question right
5: exactly so this is the time of year when you know when parents and kids start to look at you know what new backpack they want to head back to school but this year we're all just Waiting with bated breath to see what happens. We know. For, oh, and first, let me say, the rest of the country is so jealous of of DC having Dr. Bonnie Henry. Uh, she's she's so brilliant and has done such a wonderful job in DC. But uh, you know, she has identified that numbers are starting to tick back up again, and mm-hmm. uh, and so we don't know what that's going to mean. None of us none of us know what that's going to mean. So it's very difficult to plan. And this is one of the reasons that my colleagues and I have really been raising the alarm bells uh, about the state of childcare in Canada and and the need for to, to plan for child mm. care options um for families that might otherwise um you know their the children might be in school right. full time. Um but but also because uh, child care, uh, you know, for preschool children, for all families right now, isn't operating at anywhere near full capacity, and many of them may not op- reopen at all.
1: Right. What we're going to end up then, it sounds like, from what you're describing, Monica, is a bit of an unbalanced recovery where some provinces might recover differently than other provinces, and a lot of that may have to do with how much investment in childcare they make.
5: Absolutely. And, you know, B.C., um, has done a phenomenal job, uh, you know, getting out the gate uh, first with really solid health recommendations for childcare programs, as well as emergency funding. It's not perfect, and it's it's you know far from adequate at this point. But but BC was you know was uh, you know qu- quick on the draw on this one. Um, other provinces across the country are much slower, but nowhere in Canada are we anywhere near prepared to meet the needs of families. And I think, you know, there's growing concern about the effects this is having on, on parents' mental health, um, you know, trying to juggle it all. We have uh, now not just uh, service sector workers who have, who, you know, who have lost their jobs, but we actually have, you know, Bay Street lawyers saying, I can't do this anymore. I can't keep, um, you know, managing everything, uh, working from home uh, into the middle of the night, uh, right. Managing childcare, managing homeschooling—I just can't do it. So, so is really having a, a big impact on on all kinds of women.
1: Now, in this author, in this um, article that you co-authored, you've got five th- steps that you said need to be immediately taken. What are those?
5: So, the first one is is really simple. It's just getting us back up to capacity. So. So childcare is a very fragile uh, endeavor at the best of times in Canada. We're one of the few countries that doesn't have, you know, a a really strong national uh, approach to childcare. So 85 percent of parent fees or of childcare funding comes from parent fees, Um, and and so when parents aren't attending and aren't paying for childcare, those businesses I Mm say in in air quotes, but um, those those small little childcare programs. Can't can't continue to operate. So we need emergency funding to be able to increase the number of of childcare spaces available, and that means uh, perhaps opening satellite systems. So if there's distancing in place and capacity has been reduced in a childcare center, um, then perhaps uh, some public space nearby needs to be quickly licensed and opened. Um, so that additional children can attend. So those are, are the first two things. Right. Um, and then, you know, the, the third thing, I mean, time is ticking, and here we are. Um, parents are making it through summer, um, but we have to really be thinking about how we integrate um, school coordination, um, you know, with Children. Um, what am I trying to say? To help help parents find ways for their children to be engaged in activities, whether it's in school or or in a child care center, children have to go somewhere. Right. We need it's, to do some coordination around that.
1: You know, Monica, it's interesting that all of this. I think everything that has happened with the economy and with COVID nineteen, I think that one of the big things that has resulted from it is a much greater emphasis on the discussion of child care. Would you agree?
5: Absolutely. Absolutely. Before COVID, it was really seen as a a private um, responsibility of parents. And what we what we've come to learn is that now our economy rests on on mm-hmm. parents being able to work. And so if we take if we take that you know th- those parents out of the economy we're in big trouble. Yeah.
7: Um,
5: and so, so, you know, the, the large numbers of women out of the workforce, this has to be addressed or we're all going to pay for it. Um, all right. And, and the other interesting thing that we've been talking about is that uh, creating childcare centers also, you know, in the HE, he session, um, the previous recession, uh, having uh, roads and bridges and investments in, in physical infrastructure was needed. That's not the case this time. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so investing in a child care system, um, we know, pays for itself, Uh, we have economists who have identified the return on investment. Um, So this is the kind of social infrastructure that that, um, we're recommending be involved.
1: All right, Monica, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. That is Monica Lysak, Professor in the Faculty of Applied Health and Community Studies at Sheridan College. She's one of the co-authors of a paper that has been released here that talks about Investing in childcare as a way to get the economy moving again, getting people more open to returning to work. And there's all sorts of steps that need to be taken. And that's a discussion that we haven't really had before in terms of emphasizing how important childcare is to the economy. But we are certainly having that now. If you'd like to weigh in, simmy at cknw.com.
0: This is Mornings with Simmy.
1: Coming up at 10 this morning, we are going to hear from Premier John Horgan on a number of topics, and obviously he's going to also be asked about BC's economic recovery. We know the provincial government has been consulting with all sorts of members of the business community on what needs to be done, what they need to do in order to help the province recover from this pandemic. Thing is, those answers are probably changing week by week given the way the COVID-19 numbers are now also fluctuating. But we wanted to talk more about this process and what some of the businesses are saying. Joining us now is Bridget Anderson, President and CEO of the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade and part of the Premier's Economic Recovery Task Force. Hi, Bridget.
7: Good morning, Timmy.
1: Do you think some of these answers are changing given now we see the numbers kind of inching back up?
7: Oh, for sure. You know, I think there's so much uncertainty in what recovery looks like or what we thought it looked like a couple of months ago is fluid and changing now and will probably change as we get closer to the fall as well. And, you know, what's interesting about this process is that the government has engaged uh, the business community, and par- part of that is the task force, but it's also engaged the public, and the public consultation period is coming to a close as well. So the government has no shortage of ideas.
1: Yes, that's true. I, I took a look at that uh, the consultation pub, uh, process for the public, and it's extensive. It's pages. It takes you a good 15 minutes to go through that.
7: And you know we've been going through the same process at the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade with our 5,500 members and having lots of conversations with small and medium businesses, particularly some of our larger client, our larger members as well. And so we came up with a plan that we submitted to government that really has three pillars in it: helping businesses survive, transforming our region, and investing in the future. And that first part about helping businesses survive, we've talked a couple of times about the surveys that we've done in collaboration with Mm -hmm. the BC Business Council and the Chamber. And we found throughout all of the surveys that the biggest challenge to restarting post-COVID is attracting customers or revenue. So one of the primary things we're saying to government is around the idea of do no more harm. So ease regulatory burden and the layering on of taxes. Over the last couple of years, employers have seen costs increase with the new employer health payroll tax, there's increase in carbon tax, general corporate income taxes, personal taxes, and also the increase in the marginal tax rate, and then experiencing higher costs due to just ensuring that your workplace is is safe and that your your customers and your employees can come back to work. So we're saying now is not the time to add additional costs to really think long and hard about how to maybe peel off or layer off some of those uh, regulatory burdens or those administrative costs. And, you know, we've given some ideas around a payroll tax holiday and WC premium deferral for six months and things like that.
1: Right. So we're talking temporary measures here that will help some businesses get back on their feet.
7: Absolutely, and thinking about how to do that, um, and sectors that are really impacted, of course, tourism, and we've had lots of uh, conversations about just how impacted tourism is. You know, it contributes over $8 billion to the provincial GDP, so perhaps this is time for the government to look at waiving PST on items like hotels or flights Mm. for D.C. residents to start encouraging more people to travel and to help shore up that industry, Um, So some short-term measures, but then we also said it's also time now, if you think about it, maybe this is our Olympic moment, if you will, that we have a real opportunity to transform our region and to become even more of a leader, uh, also nationally and also internationally, to ensure that we are a really competitive region. So how do we transform our region and how do we also invest in the future?
1: Right. It's tricky with the enticing tourism too, though, isn't it? Because one, we know that's been a bit of a problem. And now I think people have to feel safe when they travel and perhaps some people aren't feeling as safe as they were maybe a couple of weeks ago.
7: It's really those two levers around health and safety and that has to be the priority. And I think the province has done an exemplary job on managing the health pandemic. And now it's also about building confidence. So how does the government and business come together and to really encourage confidence, whether it's about travel or it's about Riding transit, there needs to be more confidence so people feel better about being out there.
1: It's tough, though, isn't it, Bridget? When you look at that fiscal update that we had and the size of the kind of deficit and debt that BC is already facing, uh, that's a tough call then for the government to balance all that
7: absolutely and so when we're talking about transforming the region or investing in the future are there opportunities to reskill workers you know we know that women and youth have been disproportionately affected by the pandemic the youth unemployment rate in bc is at around 30 percent. so can we find dollars the government the bc government has one and a half billion dollars set aside for the recovery fund can we Mm -hmm. set aside dollars to reskill some young people and also to offer maybe uh, capital grants for small and medium businesses to to ensure that they are coming out of this post COVID stronger than they were uh, a few months ago.
1: OK, so then when will all these ideas and things that have been worked on in the surveys that you had with businesses, when we'll we be hearing more about that in terms of some concrete action?
7: That's exactly the question that we have as well. And we've got an upcoming meeting of the the task force and expect to hear more from the government. And I know the premier speaking today. I imagine that there's a lot of people within government collating all this information. I think the public consultation just ended yesterday, I believe. And so uh, it's going to take a little time, but the government, we have been very clear that they need a bold plan and there is urgency and there's no time to waste. So I'm really hoping that the government uh, will be able to tell us uh, today and give us some ideas about when that plan will come and it can't come soon enough.
1: Do you think they hear you like in the conversations that you've had? Are they listening?
7: The government is listening. Um, You know, there has been a lot of two-way conversation, uh, for sure, and and the task force is just one of those. I know there's been lots of uh, conversations sectorally as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Absolutely listening, but the proof will be in the pudding when we see that plan. That plan is so important, and we really need to see it now. All
1: right, we'll pass the message on when we get a chance. Bridget, thank you. Thanks so much, Cindy. It's Bridget Anderson, President and CEO of the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade, part of the Premier's Economic Recovery Task Force, which lots of information is being gathered. Now those businesses want to see, well, what does the plan look like? They want to start planning ahead, looking for recovery, looking for things that they can do. We'll be hearing more when the Premier speaks this morning at 10.
0: This is Mornings with Cindy.
7: In terms of the enforcement of, of parties and events that are happening, bylaw officers are able to do that. Um, certainly, there's um, people within Vancouver Coastal Health our environmental health officers who are part of the enforcement, mostly in uh, establishments like food and liquor establishments. Um, we also know that uh, uh, that there are bylaw officers who are able to. Uh, uh, work across the province on some of these issues.
1: Ah, but do we? So that is Provincial Health Officer Dr. Bonnie Henry saying that bylaw officers have the authority to step in if people are flagrantly violating the health measures that health officials have, you know, prescribed, essentially. But you saw the pictures of the drum circle at Third Beach earlier this week that brought hundreds of people into really close contact, and all we're getting from, you know, different bylaw officers and law enforcement is Well, it's not our job. Maybe they can do it. And the buck just seems to be passed around and around. So why isn't anything being done about situations like that? And more importantly, what can be done in the future? To talk more about that, we're joined now by Sarah Lehman, who's the founder of the Sarah Lehman Law Group. Sarah, thanks for being here. Thanks much for having me. Do you get the sense that the buck was kind of passed around on that?
6: I I do get that sense. Yes. I mean, we do have the tools available to punish people who are failing to comply with social distancing measures and doing so in a flagrant manner. Uh, But they just aren't being used right now. And there's a lot of questions as to why that is.
1: Okay, so using that as an example, what are the tools do you think that could have been used?
6: Well, we do have the ability for bylaw officers to issue fines, and they can be quite large monetary fines for individuals, up to $1,000. And there's even the ability for them to issue jail time. Now, of course, I'm not advocating for jail time, particularly during a pandemic. I think that's quite counterproductive. But we do have those uh, types of administrative penalties. And in more uh, serious cases or more troubling cases of you know, misconduct, then we could also look to the criminal laws.
1: But we haven't really used any of those tools yet, have we?
6: No, we haven't. Not here in BC. We are seeing examples from other provinces in Canada, but here in British Columbia, we seem to be taking an approach where it's educational rather than punitive, at least at this point.
1: Okay, and you mentioned that some of the punishment could be criminal. like what? Under what you know statute, how would you do that?
6: Well, for example, if we see somebody who's maliciously interfering with property or trying to uh, perhaps spread the COVID-19 virus through something like, for example, spitting on um, a public um, surface, uh, like maybe, you know, uh, a, an elevator panel or something like that. We saw an example of that at the beginning of the, the pandemic that occurred in Yale mm-hmm. Town. unfortunately, that person could have been reasonably charged with mischief, for example, or if we see people who are intentionally coughing or spitting on other people, uh, then they could also be charged with assault. So we do have tools available for those more troubling and disturbing cases, but Those, thankfully, have been far a few in between.
1: And do you think it's a disconnect, though, between all the different agencies or whatever that prevents any one of them from stepping forward saying, hey, we got this
3: one?
6: Well, I mean, I think this is the problem with many things. It's not just social distancing. I think that when we have a number of different agencies that are working together, there can be those disconnects. And it's very important for the messaging to be consistent. And at this point, of course, that messaging is education, not enforcement. And I guess the question turns to when is that going to change, if ever, and is it necessary?
1: ok. so when you, who would you think is most responsible? We talk about public situations, public gatherings like that with large groups of people. Is that a city of Vancouver issue? Is that a park board issue? Is that a Vancouver coastal health issue?
6: Well, the Park Board has said they have no authority to really do anything. I I think that it's going to have to be the city who steps in. And perhaps we have bylaw enforcement officers. Perhaps we have police officers. We are are going to need somebody in uniform down there actually dealing with the situation in order to make sure that the public safety isn't compromised.
1: Right. Do you see any kind of an appetite for that to happen, though?
6: (laughs) Well, we haven't seen that, have we? we no, we haven't. All indications seem to point to no. So again, the question boils down to when, if ever, are we going to have to use the pointy end of the stick?
1: Yeah, I don't see that happening. There's, you know, I, there's a, It seems to be a demand for it. Do you think the public is demanding this? Um, yes, yeah, I do think that there is a
6: silver lining there um, in terms of the public outcry because I think the vast majority of people are taking these measures very seriously and they are taking precautions in order to make sure they're complying with these recommendations. So I think that is a positive takeaway that these um, gatherings that were you know, getting attention on social media might just be the outliers. And I think that that public shaming might actually work to Hmm. help
7: correct that behavior.
1: It's such a fine balance, though, isn't it, right? On the one hand, yeah, you hope that public shaming works. On the other, people might see that and think, well, if they're doing it, I can do it too. Oh,
6: absolutely. And I think that's one of the most important things here that we have to focus on. And particularly when it comes to the law and the tools that we have in place in order to enforce these things, you know, it comes down to an issue of deterrence not just specific deterrents for those individuals engaging in it, but also general deterrents for the public at large.
1: So do you think there's not enough of a deterrent right now for those tickets to be handed out? Because what what the approach that they're taking is working?
6: Yeah, I mean, at this point, I think that we, again, have to leave it in... The, um, the jurisdiction of the relevant bodies that are uh, out there making the policy and applying it. But there is frustration around, you know, is this going to continue? Are we going to keep seeing this? And if we do, I think that we are going to have to, unfortunately, use some of those punitive measures.
1: All right, Sarah, thanks so much for your time on this today.
6: Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me.
1: That's Sarah Lehman, founder of the Sarah Lehman Law Group, talking about the measures that, you know, health authorities and others do have within their power to either ticket people or hand out fines or essentially enforce physical distancing when people don't do it. The drum circle is what gets all the attention, right? The pictures on social media and on the news all over the place of a huge group of people, clearly not distancing, dancing, partying together, just looked like COVID-19 waiting to happen and nothing, right? No tickets for that. And everybody's saying, well, you know, we, it's not our jurisdiction. We can't do it. But the point is they can do it. It's just that there's no willingness yet because so far, Knockwood people have been pretty good about listening to the warnings. As long as the word spreads that you have to listen to those warnings. Do you think that we should be cracking down though? Do you think we should be tougher on people who aren't following the social distancing rules? Drop me an email. Send me at cknw.com.